All right, would you turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 24 is where we're going to be in just a few moments. Acts 20, 24. So Acts 20, verses 17 through 38 is, in my opinion, uh, that is Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, the pastors there. This is, this is now, I'm not sure, probably something pushing 15, 20 years from the opening of the book of Acts. And so Paul is, um, is saying goodbye, he thinks, for the last time to these pastors. And he's, in essence, he's saying, this, this is how I did ministry among you. He was there for around three years and uh, planning a church, preaching the gospel, helping people grow. And in Acts 20, 17 through 38, he's, he's in essence saying, now this is, what, this is what I want you to do. I want you to continue doing what I've done. And it's the, in my view, it's a, I'm prejudiced because I'm a trainer of preachers and pastors. It's the premier passage. And that's just an opinion, uh, my opinion. My opinion counts if I'm speaking, okay? So uh, uh, it's a great passage. It's the only message, I believe, the only message in the book of Acts to believers. All the other messages in the book of Acts are evangelistic messages. Surely believers were listening in, but they were directed uh, toward the unsaved. So this is, makes it very special. And I could outline, go through uh, uh, the whole thing. But I'm going to select a verse in this that I want to bring a challenge to you uh, from my heart and talk, talk about this. A life on course. A life on course. By the word course, we mean the race. The, in the ancient world, in the Greek world, the Roman world, there would be a, a 440, a stadia, okay? Stadium, we, we call it stadium. And it didn't quite look exactly like our stadiums, but it was close. And, and the athletes would run this, this race. And of course, if it was a marathon, they would run elsewhere. I'm sure like people do marathons today. Uh, from, that was, a, that was a, a really key word. To the Apostle Paul. He had, he had a divine sense of mission, that his life was a long-term marathon. It was, a, it was a race. It was a course that he was on. He's going to reference that here in this verse. And I believe that God has such a similar course, pathway, race, Call it a plan, a purpose for the life of every believer, not just the Apostle Paul. And, of course, Paul is uh, next to the Lord Jesus Christ, it would seem to me, in the New Testament. Uh, Paul is the, is the leading example. Four times under inspiration in the New Testament, Paul said, follow me. Follow my example. And he said that under inspiration. And Paul is not, of course, claiming anything of the perfect character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but he said, follow me as I also follow Christ. So it's qualified, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. So in this verse, verse Acts 20, 24, he says, but, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus 
to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So I'm going to say this, that a life on course involves having a right attitude about four things. And they all start with the letter M, M as in that's my first name is Maurice, okay? M-A-U-R-I-C-E. I don't usually tell people that. I go by Bruce, but my dad's name was Cybert Maurice. His dad's name was Dorman Cybert McAllister. My dad was Cybert Maurice McAllister. I'm Maurice Bruce McAllister, and we stopped that uh, when my kids were, when my two boys were born and two daughters. So, uh, but I, I'm Maurice. So M as in Maurice. So I'd like to start off by saying that a life on course, a person with a life on course has a right attitude toward myself. I need to have a right attitude toward me. And Paul says this right here in this verse. He said, I do not count my life dear unto myself. Now what, what has just he's just referenced is as he's speaking to these Ephesian elders is that when he leaves where he is now and soon to come and it happens in chapter 21 22 and so on uh, if if he goes to Jerusalem he is going to go headlong into trouble now trouble was not new to Paul right he had been stoned and left for dead at Lystra. The Lord raised him up and he right, went right on, came actually back through Lystra soon thereafter and told people, you're going to go through a lot of tribulation if you follow the Lord. And he, he could tell them because he still had the bruises of the stoning in his body. Uh, he, had been, uh, uh, he had been imprisoned in Philippi, jailed at least for a, a short time and uh, had been beaten there. He knew the kind of trouble what that was all about. He would go on from there to Thessalonica and be run off. He would be run out of Berea. He would go to Athens and he would, he would uh, see the idolatry and be stirred in his own spirit. And, and many people, of course, there would reject what he has to say. There was not, apparently at the time, a church planted in Athens. They were not receptive enough to have a church planted that we know of later perhaps but he would go to Corinth and for 18 months he would be there and and there'd be trouble in Corinth and he saw the carnality and the the idolatry and and the uh, licentiousness there and from there he would go to Ephesus and you remember in Ephesus uh, that uh, it was there was a great ministry in Ephesus actually a church was established and from from Ephesus, the word of the Lord spread all throughout Asia Minor. And, and it, that's just an amazing, Acts 19.10 talks about. So that all they that were in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Boy, what a verse. Whatever that means. I, I mean, it's an amazing verse. But I take it at face value. But, but then there was that, you know, that, that amphitheater there in Ephesus filled with people who were upset because... Uh, this preacher was causing the silversmiths to lose their idolatrous prophet. Uh, and, and, and so they, they came into that amphitheater that I'm told would hold 20,000 people. And for the space of two hours, the Bible tells us, they yelled, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And I like to think that Paul was out in the, 
out in the outfield. He was at the bullpen, you know, he was off to the side and he was warming up and he said, let me at him, boys, let me at him. And he wanted to go right there on the pitcher's mound and, uh, and proclaim Jesus Christ. He was not afraid of that. His, his own friends held him back and said, Paul, they will tear you limb from limb if you do. You, we can't, we're not going to let you go in there that day. So Paul was not afraid he can't. And he knew what trouble was. But, but what would compel a man to be so determined to preach the gospel that even now with the prophecies coming, look at 20, uh, 22, he says, uh, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things which shall befall me, except that the Holy Spirit says in every city, witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. And then in the next chapter, a prophet named Agabus is going to say, whoever goes and does this, they're going to, he took his garment, he tied his, tied his hands together, they're going to be bound like this. And Paul was like, it doesn't matter, I'm going to go. So he had a right attitude toward himself. Now, I tell you, the right attitude toward self comes from a right attitude toward God, doesn't it? And, and so, for Paul, Jesus was Lord. God was first, foremost, and central. While on the one hand, a man who wants to be on course must be determined and decisive, on the other hand, he needs to be dispensable and disposable. The work of God is going to go forward. One day we will be off the scene. It doesn't depend upon us in, in, a, in a certain sense. God wants us to invest to do all that we can do, but there'll be a day when either the Lord will come again in our lifetime or he'll call us home through the, through the pathway, the valley of the shadow of death, and, and we'll be moved on and the work will go on. So while we want to be on course during our life, we also want to live in a self-denying way. Jesus said, if, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake in the gospel, he says, you will save it. Isn't that an interesting thing? You give yourself to God, you give yourself away, and you actually find thereby the very purpose for what God has called you to do. So he had a right attitude toward himself. He had taken his hands off of his life. He was doing, in fact, almost the first thing out of the Apostle Paul's mouth when he, when he, got, when he was struck down on the road to Damascus in his conversion. You know, the first thing he said was, who art thou, Lord? And the second thing he said is, Lord, what will you have me to do? So there was... Conversion in Paul's life brought a simultaneous surrender to the Lord, and he was totally converted, and he soon thereafter began to preach the gospel in uh, the synagogues of Damascus. It says in Acts 9, immediately. Central to Christian discipleship is self-denial out of supreme love for Christ. Jesus said, if you don't have this, you cannot be my disciple. Self, 
self-love is natural. Paul alludes to that in one of the epistles where he said, no man ever yet hateth, but rather nourisheth and cherishes his own flesh. I mean, you know, let me, did anybody have to be force-fed this morning? No. If you eat breakfast, most of you, I assume, eat breakfast. Some of you had a very hearty breakfast. I had good breakfast this morning. Nobody had to come along and go, come on now, open your mouth wide. Okay, put it in. You know, uh-uh, maybe you're a little two-year-old, but not, not men. You feed yourself. You take care of yourself. It's a, I'm not saying anything wrong with that, but that's natural. You take care of yourself. And in so many other ways, being self-serving is natural. But gentlemen, living in self-denial is, is supernatural. It goes against the natural inclination of our heart. And so, and so if our life is going to be on course, we've got to take our hands off of our lives and say as Paul, Lord, now what do you want me to do? And even if it includes trouble, difficulty, challenges, hardship, loss of income, misunderstanding, all of these kind of things, then you go, okay, I'm, I mean, I'm not seeking, I'm not trying to be a martyr, but, but I just, Lord, I just want you to know whatever it is you want me to do, that's what I want to do. So a life on course has a right attitude toward, toward um, me, toward myself. Really, we're talking about the motive of living a God-pleasing life. Secondly, a life on course has a right attitude toward mission, toward mission. And we're talking here about that particular phrase there that says, so that I might finish my course with joy. And I just don't want to overlook that little expression, joy. So let me, let me comment on that, okay? There is nothing, there is nothing so satisfying as serving the Lord, even with all the imperfections that we know we have as we try to serve him. There, there, is, there is joy in serving Jesus, right? The song says. It is wonderful. It is extremely satisfying. When I was, when I was a little boy, I had one of these Bibles with, did you, ever, did you ever have one of these, like I think it's a blue cover with Jesus and the disciples, uh, Jesus and the, not the disciples, the little children running, running to him, maybe they're on his lap or something. Do you have a little Bible like that? I had a little Bible like that. And back in the day, it was, it was uh, a fad or a common thing for, after uh, you hear a guest preacher, you'd go up and ask him to sign your Bible. He would sign your Bible and put a Bible verse in there. And that was really special to have. I think we gave you a chance to meet preachers. It's a good thing. There was a man, I think his name was John Wood. He, he wrote, he signed his name. I think he was an evangelist. At least he was a guest speaker in our little church. And he wrote there, it pays to serve Jesus. Now, I probably saw that 55 years ago, 60 years ago. He was exactly right. There's joy. Next month will be, for me, it's hard to believe, 50 years of preaching. I started preaching when I was 15, almost 16. I'm 65, almost 66. And I've preached plenty of messages that were a flop. I've made plenty of mistakes. If, if you give me an opportunity, I'll, 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 I'll do that here, okay? And I just make you feel good. And... 
I'll mess up. I've messed up a lot. But my life is full of joy. I mean, a, a true joy. There is, there is joy. Now, here's, here's what I want for my life is I don't want to mess up at this phase of my life. I don't want to do something stupid, really stupid, morally stupid, stupid in any way, careless. My prayer for Bruce McAllister at this phase of my life is that I will be faithful to God in every respect, faithful, the fullest biblical meaning of that word, faithful, that I would be fruitful, winning people to Christ, helping them get discipled, getting them established, having fruit that lasts, fruit that remains, that I would be fervent. I don't want to be a lukewarm, warm, hum-ho, you know, okay, just lay back, cruise. I, I want to I be appropriately on fire for the Lord. That'll be loud, some, you know, in preachers. It's not just being loud, okay, as you preach. That's not what I'm talking about. I can be loud. I have a big mouth. But I'm talking about having fire in, in my heart for the Lord. And you have to cultivate that because there's plenty of things in life that want to throw cold water on the fire of your heart. And that I would finish well. That's the fourth F in that little series, okay? Faithful, fruitful, fervent, and finish well to the glory of God. And that's what Paul is saying here, that I might finish my course with joy. He had a sense of mission. Now, this is a missions, missions conference. So we have missionaries here. We talked about that word yesterday. And so I believe every believing man and woman, teenager, boy or girl for that matter, elderly person, ought to have a sense of mission. This is what God wants me to do with my life. These are the people that God wants me to be focused upon reaching. This is where God wants me to live. This is the church he wants me to be in. This is the employment, the vocation, the area in which I, I have gifting or can cultivate that and and uh, support my family. This is the church ministry, and this is the type of ministry within my local church that, that I should be carrying out. A sense of mission. Now, of course, Paul, Paul was, you know, there was just one Paul, okay? Now, let's go back to Acts 9, chapter 9 and verse 15 to see what his mission was. Actually, his mission initially was given to Ananias of Damascus, which doesn't say that Ananias told him this, but I, I, I feel that God told Paul or Ananias told Paul or I don't know. But Acts, Acts 19, 15 says, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before, here you go, the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's the Lord saying this to Ananias. So he was going to have a threefold ministry before Gentiles, before Jews, and before kings. And if you follow this out in the book of Acts, that's what happened. And actually in this verse, we are at a pivotal point where essentially Paul has not given the gospel, to my knowledge at least, to kings, that is to rulers, provincial rulers and the like. 
But when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to have trouble. And actually, he's going to get in so much trouble that the Roman soldiers are going to take him into protective custody. And, and through a series of circumstances, they're going to transport him out to Caesarea by the sea, which is, I don't know, 60, 70 miles perhaps, through an overnight cavalry caravan, as it were, horses. And, and so they take him out there. And I've stood at Caesarea Maritima, it's called, by the sea. And I've stood what may well have been the actual prison. Uh, it's just ruins now where, where Paul was imprisoned there for two years. And guess what he's going to do in Acts 22 and 23 and 24? He, he starts giving the gospel to the ruler, Felix, and Drusilla, his wife. Not, not real nice people. And they like to hear him. So they would come. Um, my old friend Mark Minnick said, yeah, you can just see Drusilla there filing your fingernails while she's listening to Paul give the gospel. You know, like scorning. You can see that. And Festus and Agrippa in Acts 24. So what am I saying? I'm saying then he, he appeals to Caesar and he goes all the way to Rome uh, through three ships and a shipwreck and trouble there, and he lands in Rome. In Acts 28, you have him there, and he's got two more years of some type of house arrest, and he's given out the gospel to people that come and go from there. And he says in Philippians, which is Acts 28, same time context, he says, don't worry about me. The things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel. So that all day in Caesar's household, they're hearing the word of the Lord and others are being emboldened to give the gospel out, even if they're not well motivated always, they're nevertheless giving out the gospel, Philippians chapter one. Here's what I'm going to say. The trouble becomes the platform upon which the ministry goes forward. And if you'll watch this in life, even in your own life, the trouble that you go through, many times the trouble over time, becomes the platform, the pulpit, as you, if you want to call it that, the opportunity upon which you have a broadened ministry. For John Vaughn, pastor in Greenville, it was a fire in his house that, that severely burned his wife and really severely burned his daughter. So then he had a ministry develop out of that for children, a school for special needs children. You remember the old Dr. Bill Rice? Well, he, he was a Westerner, Dr. Bill Rice Jr. He and his wife had a deaf daughter, and out of that came the great deaf ministry of the Bill Rice Ranch. And you could go on and on. This is, people have tragedy, and then God turns misery into ministry. So Paul was on mission. And I would just challenge you, you I, I'm looking at some young men back here and scattered around and some, some young adult young men, maybe some still single, some newly married, some got your family underway, some are in the mid-years of life, others are in the upper years of life. Stay on mission. You need a purpose. You need a mission. You need to keep your life on course all the way, all the way till God comes again, the Lord comes again, or God calls you home. Be on mission. And then, and then I'd like to throw this in, that, that he had a right, right attitude toward ministry. Notice that word ministry in this verse. So that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I've received of the Lord Jesus 
the ministry. This is uh, the word from which we get our word deacon. It doesn't mean you have to be a deacon to have a ministry. It's the Greek word diakonos. Diakoneo is the verb. And it just means to, to serve like a table waiter, like a waitress would serve. Or somebody would, it's, it's a menial type service. Okay, it's just perfunctory. It's, it's, uh, it's a ministry, okay? There's three, there's three words in, the, not to be worried about this too much, but in Greek you have several words that are translated serve. There's a latreia latruo, which means, I call it worship service, to serve as a priest. There's willing service, the service of a doulos, a bond slave, deluo. It means, it means to serve as a, as a bond slave, as a slave, as a servant. I call it willing service because you're subordinating yourself to the one that's in charge. And then there's working service, and that's dakino, dakinos, and that's what we're looking at here. That's, I call it working service. It's rolling up your sleeves and getting dirty in what you're doing. Okay. And sometimes it refers to the actual ministry of the word. And preachers are sometimes called kind of politely ministers. That's a biblical concept. But, but there's a whole lot of ministry outside of doing what I'm doing, like teaching a class like this this morning. It's physical sometimes, and it's dirty, and it's, it's all kind of stuff that's involved in this. But he had a, he had a right attitude toward ministry. Someone defined it like this, a true servant views his service as waiting on others and serving their needs. This word is used in several verses in the New Testament. John 12, 26 is the, probably the best verse on this, on this idea. Jesus said, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. All of those use that word, dakinos or dakinos. Jesus said, whosoever, this is Matthew 20, 26, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Matthew 23, 11, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. I like to put it like this. If you have a servant's heart, you will never be without a ministry. Because you will, you, will, you will see needs and you will meet needs. It'll be the natural reflux of your heart to, I'm going to do whatever I can to meet that need. It may be financial, it may be physical, it may be spiritual, it may be practical, it may be educational, it may be, it may be coaching your, uh, a ball team that your son or grandson are on. It can be any number of things where you have the ability to serve. J. Oswald Sanders, in his phenomenal book, the best book in my life outside the Bible, Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders, he, says, he said it this way. He said, true greatness, true leadership is not achieved by reducing men to one's service, but in giving oneself in selfless service to them. And so we need to have that servant's heart. If our life is going to be there really shouldn't be something like, you know, I'm, I'm just too good to do that. No. No, I have the privilege to do whatever it takes to, to help others. And then finally, he had a right attitude toward his message, toward his message. And this is the last phrase in the, in the verse. He says, the ministry I received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So actually, his life and message was not about himself. It was about another. He lived to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. 
So I like to put it like this to us practically. Um, men, we, 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 need, we need to have a right attitude toward ourselves. We need to be well motivated to please God through self-denial. We need to have a mission, a purpose for living. We need to have a ministry, and when I and a right attitude toward ministry. And when I say that, that, that means like this, like if you're not aware that you are doing something consciously serving God and others for the gospel's sake, then you need to really think a little bit more deeply about what it is God would have for you to do. And it's not like you wait on the pastor to ask you to do something to do that. You just do it. You, you find a way. I'm not saying do something inappropriate and, you know, require to yourself responsibility no one has authorized or, you know what I'm saying. But like, you don't, you don't have to wait for some, somebody. You've got to, you, you make it happen, okay? You do that at work, don't you? you? Something needs to happen and you go, okay, by God's grace, with the right attitude and proper humility, you know, we need to make this happen. And you can start with praying about that, okay? But you also need to be able to simply and clearly articulate the gospel message itself. And that does not mean you need to be a theologian to do that. That just means you need to have a, know where a few verses are in the Bible that you could show someone, an unsaved person, who very likely knows far, far less than you know. So don't be intimidated. And if they happen to know a few things, still don't be intimidated, okay? Because what they need is the Spirit of God to open their eyes that they might see. And it could be a simple verse from the Bible. The Romans wrote plan of salvation. I, I, I remember evangelist Hal Webb giving us that. I asked him, I said, can you, as a teenager, junior high age, I said, could, could you, uh, I, was, I think I was ninth grade, I said, could, could you... Uh, Tell me how I can lead somebody to Christ. He said, I'm going to preach on that tomorrow night. And he preached on the Romans Road Plan of Salvation. And that is good enough for me, okay? It's still, for me, the best approach. And there's a lot of ways, verses and pathways you can present the same gospel through. But you, you've got to have a message on your heart. And you know, gentlemen, we have ladies here as well. Um, the Part of that is that you're actually thinking on a fairly regular basis, maybe a daily basis, what God has already done for you in salvation so that there's a freshness in your heart that you're just thinking, you know, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sins and rising again. Thank you for saving me. And if you're thinking like that and praying like that, reading parts of the Bible like that, then when unsaved people come across your path, it's right on the front of your mind. And then you've got a verse or a gospel track or a gospel booklet, you know, handy, and you're planning and you're thinking, you're you're praying for people so you have a right attitude toward your message. Let me, let me close this out with an illustration if I can. I'm going to call, I'm going to call this uh, reaching a gated community, okay? So I'm, I'm from Greenville. I'm, I grew up in Alabama, but I've been in Greenville, South Carolina since I was 18. Northwestern, more or less northwestern South Carolina. And for most of my adult life, I was, uh, I was actually involved in leading, overseeing, assisting, or whatever, the, the BJU, Bob Jones University, student outreach program. And so we had, whole, we had a whole lot of gospel ministry going on, and I got to help facilitate that, and that was phenomenal, phenomenal privilege. Well, about 10 years ago, there's a 
gentleman, older gentleman in our church named Ken McKenzie. His son is a missionary to Germany, Brad McKenzie, and his wife, Krisha. And uh, Ken McKenzie is a former pastor. He's, uh, you know, 80 years old now or something. And he, he said, you need to talk to Phyllis McMinn. And Phyllis McMinn was the new chaplain of the Greenville Detention Center. And her husband, Baptist pastor, had been killed in an automobile accident in Greenville, Greenwood, South Carolina. She had four children. She moved to Greenville. She had done women's prison ministry down there and near Greenwood, 60 to 50, 50 miles south of Greenville. And I don't know exactly how, but she turned out to be the, the new chaplain of the Greenville Detention Center. And so uh, Kim McKenzie said, you need to talk to Phyllis. And so, because of my work with BJ, so we made arrangements. I talked with her, took a person or two with me. She had people with her, and we talked about it. Here's, here's what I mean by reaching a gated community. There's a beautiful high-rise community just about three miles from the university campus toward downtown. I had driven by this community over the years and had even been inside a few times to visit, try to visit, but had never actually realized the ministry opportunities at hand there. This is a gated community. You cannot get in without going through much red tape and many gates. Some people there make you feel welcome, but not everyone. Security is very high. Members of the community are apparently all Clemson fans because orange is the favorite dress there. Predominant color. This gated community is occupied at the time by 1,200 people, including 200 women. It's quite multicultural and cross-cultural. And what I found is there are many opportunities there to reach desperate men, in my case, women, women go in, and, and some of these folks in there really want the help. And so we, we began on Easter Sunday morning, 2011. I had never really done jail ministry of any, of any just maybe just touched on it. Never had done, done a lot of other things. Hadn't done that. We got started. I had to learn how to do it. They said to us, Mrs. McMahon, she remarried, and her name is Phyllis Brewer today. And she said, we want BJU to take all of the Sunday services. I was like, whoa. Which are numerous small pod services throughout the Greenville Detention Center. Well, we, we got started and we found our way the best we could. And we didn't eventually take all the services, so to speak. But I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened. One year, a few years after we got started, she was keeping a head count of how many men and women attend those services. This is a head count. That's not different people. But an accumulated head count for a year, one year, was 6,600 people. And this is at, you know, sometimes you'll have six, sometimes you'll have 10, sometimes you'll have 12. And if you have 15 in a small little room, that's, that's packed out. And you know, you, know what I've, you know what I found? I found... I've been driving by the Greenville Detention Center, I'm sure, for years. Big, white, high-rise, six-story probably, I don't know, big, tall building. And, it, and I just drove by it, and I, it, it, it never, I don't think it ever crossed my mind there was a ministry opportunity there for me. Most Sunday nights, outside of this restricted health crisis thing we're in, 
If I'm in town, I'm in jail on Sunday night after church. You know what? I love it. I was uneasy when I first went in. I was, I don't know if you'd say I was afraid, but I was cautious. And uh, I'd gone through a training there years prior to that, and the, and the old chaplain would just scare the life out of you about, you're going to get your nose cut off, and they're going to cut your ears. And, and, you know, and, and nobody had ever even been accosted, but he'd try to scare everybody away. They wanted to do ministry there ridiculous but there was a new regime there was a new leadership and what we found and then you know out of that came an open door for our students to do uh, right across the parking lot ministry in the Greenville Juvenile Detention Center and I think that's still going today now you say why are you saying that I I never thought I would do jail ministry I mean, Paul did a different kind of jail ministry. I've gotten out every time I get in so far. I'm really happy about that. But I'm saying maybe, there's, maybe it's not jail ministry, but maybe it's something that in your life you're just kind of driving by and not realizing. It might be a next-door neighbor. It might be a colleague at work. It might be a retirement group that y'all play games together or something. It might be a sports setting. It might be a, guys, a group of guys that like to hunt. It, it just might be taking interest in somebody and you have no idea what's going on in their lives. But if you know the Lord and you know what he's done for you, somebody said evangelism is just telling, just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. That's a good way to put it. And so we need to have a life on course. And, and, and part of that, part of that, is, is being men who have a message on your heart, ready to share, praying for the lost. And I'm preaching to myself, okay? I am speaking to Bruce, first of all, this morning. Oh, Maurice, uh, speaking to myself.